Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. I'm going to be opening the scriptures uh, today for our message. We are ending a series today, which has been called David the Shepherd King, where we've looked at the life of David and what it teaches us. But also there's a bit of an overlap today. We are also beginning our Advent series. Advent starts today. Can you believe it? The year seems to have gone slow and fast and everything in between. Really strange year. But we're excited to be beginning Advent, where we position ourselves, posture ourselves to remember Jesus is coming into the world, his incarnation. And so the series that we'll be beginning today is called O Come All Ye Faithful. So end of David the Shepherd King and the beginning of O Come All Ye Faithful. And what we'll find is that these two themes very much overlap. So to end this teaching on David's life, I wanted to begin with uh, a part of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22. David is coming to the end of his life he has been king in Jerusalem, been through so many ups and downs, drama, all kinds of things that were found in his life. And there's this wonderful inclusion of Psalm 18, which is this psalm written by David, which is an incredible psalm, I encourage you to read it. And that psalm is also found at this chapter. And we really see here the legacy and themes of David's life. I'm just going to read not all of it, but parts of it. I want to begin at uh, verse 4 where it says this, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. We see this in David's life, a man pursued by enemies, pursued by Saul, who was the last one anointed, but had lost that mantle as he turned away from God. In verse five, it says, the waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I called out to my God. And if you've been reading through the story of David, you've seen those moments when it looked like all was lost. Sometimes David's enemies were outside of him and those pursuing him, whether it's his own people, his own king, or even foreign nations. But David also battled internal enemies. Sometimes he was his worst enemy. And so those images that we see there of death, destruction, the grave, trying to get him, we see in those moments that he called out to God. And so in verse 47, as this passage comes to an end, David says this, The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my saviour. David, who was king in Jerusalem, who understood the protection of what it was to be in this royal city, surrounded by walls and a palace, knew that ultimately his true stronghold was God. The rock, this symbol, and in the biblical language, which is linked to this idea of faithfulness, that ultimately his rock, his stronghold, what he could have faith in was God, his saviour. In verse 48, it says this, He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes from a violent man. You rescued me. 
And that language there of the nations under him is not really about him trying to create some massive empire. The nations in the Old Testament represent, in a sense, the culture which is not under God's rule. And so constantly David finds himself under this pressure of orders and ways which are not of God. Yet at the end of his life, he's able to talk of the ways in which by turning to God, he could triumph in those moments. Verse 50, therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king, speaking of himself, great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now just remember that part, to David and his descendants forever. That will become relevant as we continue on. So we have this incredible testimony, this legacy of David's life. This man who faced real trials, real terrors, yet who turned to his God. And at the end of his life could sing such an incredible praise to God. We have this incredible example of faith. Yeah, in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, we then have this really little interesting other note that you can easily miss. David, if you've read the story, was accompanied by this troop of men, these warriors, sometimes called these mighty men or his mighty warriors, who followed him even at those moments when he had lost the kingdom, when the powers were after him. And it goes through all of their names and lists them and, and what they did. And it gets to the very end. And it simply says this in 2339, listing all of these names, some giving a little bit of detail too. But at the end, it simply says, and Uriah, the Hittite. Reading through, you can miss this. But what this is referring to is a man who was one of David's loyal followers, the warriors who went into the wilderness with him, who were loyal and showed faithfulness to their king. But this is a reminder that David, an exemplar of faith, also had failings. Uriah was the husband of a woman known as Bathsheba. One day, David, in his palace, looked down and saw Bathsheba bathing. Now, already this story is problematic. What was the king doing on top of a building, peering and leering towards some women? Not only did he just leer, but he then organized to have Uriah, one of his most faithful warriors, sent to the battlefront in order to be killed. He then takes Bathsheba as his wife. And this brings judgment upon David. This brings judgment upon the kingdom. For the king is a representative of the people. And this is why at this part, when you've read the story of David, there's things which are incredibly inspiring. There's an exemplar of faith, but there's also things which are troubling. Details which get stuck in your mind, creating a sense of unease. How do we hold these two things together? David, this man who can say, God is my rock. He is the faith upon which I can build. Uh, or he gives me, he has faith in God as his rock, as this faithful presence in his life. Yet at the same time, David has this moment where he doesn't show faith in God. And even someone like Uriah, who had faith in his own king, David, David doesn't repay that faith. David, David's life in both his faithfulness and his failings point us to one who will come from his line. 
To understand this, we've got to go back in the story to the beginning of the book of Samuel. Now, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, we find that Israel has not heard from God. Visions are rare in those days. Now, at this point, Israel was different to the nations. Israel was called to be set apart from the nations. And the nations, again, remembering a representative of cultures, not under the lordship or kingship of God. The nations had kings. Israel was different. It did not have the same leadership structure as other nations. It was led by God. But the people wanted a king. Why? Well, they wanted to have autonomy. They wanted to have a human leadership structure, a human autonomy apart from God. This, what's this remind us of? This reminds us of in the garden when Adam and Eve lived under the rule and reign of God in the garden, in paradise. Yet they swapped out that rule and reign for their own kind of leadership structure where they as humans could be like gods. They could have their own human power apart from God. Israel also wants to be a nation with a king because it wants to be like the other nations. It wants to set their standards according to the world, the surrounding culture, not God's ways. Ultimately, they want an earthly throne. They're rejecting the heavenly throne. Now, Israel is warned by God what will happen if they have a king. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 to 18, Samuel passes on, Samuel the prophet passes on the word of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. He says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. And he goes through all of these different implications of what it will mean for Israel if they have a king. It will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. They want autonomy but under human leadership, ultimately the freedom they want will turn into a kind of slavery. In verse 18, it says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so the people still want a king. Despite this warning, they still want a king. And they look to this character called Saul. Saul, who is tall, handsome, impressive by every earthly standard is exactly the kind of king that a people would want to be like the nations. If you want to be like the nations and you want a king like the nations, you're going to want a king that actually impresses the nations. Yet the prophecy of Samuel comes true. At the beginning of his reign, Saul is filled with the spirit, but he becomes corrupted. He loses the mantle of the Lord and that corruption then flows into the nation. And so God replaces Saul with David. The man, as scripture tells us, is a man after his own heart. And God appoints him ruler of his people. And David is different to Saul in this way, that he has a heart which is pursuing God. We see this as we've looked over the last few weeks, as we've looked at the expanse of David's life, we see the young man who grows in his intimacy with God in the wilderness, amongst the wild animals, whose faith in God, his rock, means that he does not look to the earthly weapons of the Philistines, but he actually just uses what God has shown him in the wilderness, this sling and this incredible act of faithfulness enables him to conquer this giant of the nations. 
as Trudy spoke of, we find his prayers, his psalms, fill so much of our scriptures. David, unlike Saul, inquires of God. He seeks God both as an individual and as a king. We see in David's life this incredible faithful patience as he lives anointed, called to be king but without the crown. He's pursued and harried, yet he never takes Saul's life. What an act of patience. What an act of faithfulness in the promise that was over his life. We see in David this heart after God, which manifests in his heart for worship. As the ark, the presence of God is brought back into the city and David dances with abandon, even when others scorn him and look down on him and mock him. His heart is for worship. He has a zeal to re-establish the worship of God in the center of the nation in which he's leading. David, unlike the king which came before him and so many of the kings which come after him, lived for God. He is the model king in many ways of what the people at that time and when the kingship became more corrupted, they would think back to David as this model of what a godly king should look like. Yet again, you conflict it as you read the story because we see in David a heart after God, but we also see in David a heart that looks away from God. And this is not just about his fall when he commits this sin in taking Bathsheba as his wife and taking the life of Uriah. Scripture tells us that before the episode with Bathsheba, while Israel was in the midst of a war, David, who once was at the front lines of Israel, leading them bravely into battle, trusting God as his ultimate leader, that just before the fall with Bathsheba happens, the Scriptures tell us in one of those seemingly offhanded lines that actually are packed with meaning. That while Israel was at war, David lingered in Jerusalem. Something's happened. As he's become comfortable in the palace, he's forgotten the ways of the wilderness where he was totally dependent upon God. And this lingering is telling. Lingering often leads to a longing for things that are not of God. In Deuteronomy 17 verse 17 When Moses is preparing the people to come into the promised land, he speaks forward of what will happen in the future, warning that at some stage Israel will want a king. And when they do get a king, he then sets out, if they're going to have a king, what kind of king and what sort of standards should this king and leaders live from? Now, one of the lines he says is it's really important that unlike the nations, what the king must do is he must not take a plurality of wives. Or why? The scriptures tell us his heart will be led astray. Before Bathsheba and Uriah, David was setting his sexual standards according to the surrounding culture, according to the word, rather than heaven's standards. And so these little details that you read, like David took a bunch of wives and then the scriptures keep going. No, you've got to learn to understand how often The scriptures will make these seemingly mundane comments that are actually packed with meaning. They're allowing the story to unfold. 
We also see in the scripture what I preached on several weeks ago, that David, the man who defeated Goliath with simply a stone in this upside down, incredible story of a boy defeating a giant from the nations, that later on in his life, he has this moment where he forgets that. Faithfulness is a remembering of the goodness of God. Faithfulness is a remembering of God's mighty acts in history. But forgetting, when we forget what God has done, we find ourselves lingering on other thoughts, focused on other things. And this happens to David when he's on the run, when he reaches the the priests and goes in afraid and asks for them for a weapon. And they offer him the sword of Goliath. And he says, yes, I want to take it because it's like no other. David forgets. And even in David's great kingly reign, he cannot stop the fractures that are starting to just appear in Israel. His own son, as Ryan preached on, rebels against him. Again, we see the pattern repeating. Saul was this good-looking king that looked like a king should look like, that looked like the kind of amazing, stunning kings that the nations had. David is a man whose heart is after God. Yet again, the pattern returns. Sin is so often cyclical. And the people choose Absalom, who is good-looking, phenomenal hair, He looks like what a king should look like. And people look for the outside earthly metrics. They measure with earthly eyes. They want an earthly throne. David shows incredible faithfulness at this moment. He leaves Jerusalem and he puts his faith and trust in God. His last days as a king are spent worshipping and hoping for the building of a dwelling place for the presence of God to be built amongst these people. He, in his faithfulness, is willing to, when Absalom has his rebellion, to leave Jerusalem trusting in God. When he wants to build a house for the, the ark, a, a temple, God says no. And he still is faithful and trusting of God. Yet despite this faithfulness and this trust in God, David alone cannot hold together the underlying fractures that are developing within the people of God, which will eventually see as the story unfolds, the people of God called to be this unified witness to the surrounding nations. The kingdom splits into, into Israel and Judah, a north and a southern kingdom. The people of God torn apart. Even in his legacy, Solomon, his son, who is then given the next seat in the line of secession. His son Solomon is a great and wise man who indeed does finish that project. He builds the temple. But if you read the text carefully, again, you can see those offhanded comments, those details, which actually point to something going wrong. Compromises with the nations that come in. Wives and concubines taken, the temple built, but actually built with different materials, materials from the nations, trying to be glorious from an earthly standard. Cracks of compromise, which will grow into great fissures, which will fracture the people of God apart. What is this telling us? How do we hold these two things together? David's faithfulness, but then the moments when his heart is not faithful and he forgets. This tells us something really, really important. Yes, David was an incredible leader. We can learn from his example. Yet what the scriptures are telling us 
is human leaders alone cannot solve the issue of sin and corruption and unfaithfulness. We cannot have faith in leaders alone. So we now can see what in David's life, both in his faithfulness, but also his failings, he points beyond himself to someone who will come. And indeed, one must come. David lives this incredible life, yet he is human. Someone else must come. And so this is the pivot point, this sermon between our shepherd, David the Shepherd King series, into our Advent series. And this is the pivot point of the sermon. The point where we begin to see the need for Jesus in our world, a different kind of leader, a different way. We see the limits of human power. Even when people are living for God, without Jesus, we can fall short. Now, there are so many parallels between Jesus and David. Both are born in Bethlehem. Both are shepherd kings. Both are pursued in their early years by an evil king. Both spend time in the wilderness. Both are on the run. Both are rejected for Jerusalem. Both walk up the Mount of Olives weeping for the city of Jerusalem. This is why, again, both David in his faith and failings point us towards Jesus. Now, the spiritual heights of David's life emerge from his faithfulness in God. Solomon praying to God said of his earthly father in 1 Kings 3.6, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful in you. And yes, David had faith in God. This makes him a great king. However, a greater king must come, one who is not simply human power, but one who we can have all our faith in because he is unshakable. He is God in human form. And so just as David at Absalom's rebellion leaves the palace, what we remember at this time of year is the fact that Jesus left all that is heaven and the heavenly courts to come to earth. He gives up so much because of his great love for us. Jesus comes into the world to be our king. And even when Jesus is on earth, when he begins his ministry in his early 30s, what's fascinating is that you can see that he's going beyond David, yet a lot of the controversy and pressure that comes upon Jesus is because people want him to fit the mold of David. David points towards Jesus, yet when Jesus, God in human form, turns up, people actually want him to do more David stuff than God in human form stuff. As Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people want him to be like a new David, to take the human throne that Herod sits upon. They want a, another human kingdom. They want another human king. The Messiah to them is someone who will simply come and make them great again. But Jesus in his life gives them something more. He doesn't just fulfill their felt need. He fulfills this true, deep need that the world has for that problem of sin and corruption to be solved in the world. He gives them not just an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom breaking out on the earth. 
Now, what's incredible is Jesus in that line of David deserves the throne, but he doesn't enter into Jerusalem, head to the palace and take the throne, the earthly throne, which is his as the king of the Jews in David's line and get out that usurper Herod. What's amazing is we think back to the story that Ryan spoke of last week, the story of Absalom's rebellion. Do you remember how Absalom died? Now, what was remarkable about Absalom was apparently his hair. Interestingly, every year, scholars think there was this great ceremony where what he would do is weigh his hair. And this almost became like an annual festival. This was like a, a pseudo event, a, 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 you know, a press conference, and you know, it'd be live streamed on Instagram. And here he would be, you know, it's that time of year again, people. It's Absalom's hair removal and weighing for the year. And it would just be a big thing. All people be flying in around from the world to come to this moment. But all it did was simply speak of his pride. It made this man who feels he is called to be king. He wants to take the human throne, but he's doing that through his own power and charisma and celebrity. And that leads to rebellion. How does he die? His hair gets caught in a tree. Again, not just a little thing in scripture which you can move past. To be caught on a tree, to hang in a tree, to die on a tree has massive spiritual significance in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, Again, as Moses is speaking to the people, giving them his charge, encouraging them to be faithful before they enter into the promised land. He says this, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. To hang on a tree, to hang on a pole was to actually come under God's curse, to be an unacceptable offering to God. It was to suffer divine judgment to pay the price for rebellion against God. And we can see how Absalom's paying that price. But what is remarkable is that Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a king. And what happens to him? Does he sit on Herod's throne? No. He hangs in Absalom's place on a tree, stuck on a pole hangs naked, ashamed, under divine judgment on a cross. This man who had none of David's failings, who was perfect, who did no wrong, God in human form comes, the one true king of heaven, and yet places himself in the place of Absalom's rebellion under the curse of that Deuteronomy speaks. Why does he do this? Because Jesus is coming to solve the primary problem. That actually the problem is that humans, even at their absolute best, even as David leads this program to bring the entire nation back to God, to place worship and God and his way at the center of the culture, he still fails. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans tells us. But Jesus comes and he takes our place. He stands in the place of rebellion. This man who was humbler than anyone who's ever been, he stands in that place of the arrogance of Absalom. He stands in that place of rebellion that we see running from Absalom back to the garden and into our day. 
Jesus stands there and he solves the great problem of the world, our rebellion against God. We rejected him as king, yet he gives his life for us. And this path does not lead to an earthly throne. He does not go on the cross and then move into Jerusalem and become the new king. Instead, Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, God in heaven. Jesus deserved the earthly throne, but he doesn't give us an earthly throne. Rather, he gives us the heavenly throne and heaven is breaking out into world and a new kingdom is breaking out everywhere and we get to participate in it. We are at a moment where there is a profound culture-wide, worldwide loss of faith in human leadership. We have seen in every expanse of culture, leaders pulled down, institutions humiliated, injustices exposed. As the world has become more connected, as there are video phones everywhere, we can now see injustices happening in real time. Anyone can capture them. An increasingly dark picture of the world has emerged. Has the world gotten crazy? No, the world's always been this broken. It's just that we're seeing it more easily. And the myths and the idols are harder to keep going, but they're very quickly replaced because we as humans, when we lose trust in something, we end up putting our trust in something that is not apart from God and that lingering, which left David in Jerusalem. Longing for something apart from God is all around us. It's everywhere. And at this moment, when the church and the world has been through a gigantic interruption, so many people I know, their churches have been turned upside down. So many people have left, people deconstructed their faith, so many things going on. At this moment of great loss of faith in institutions and everything, at this moment, we need to remember that words of that great hymn sung for centuries amongst the people of God. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. First of all, it's a calling of the faithful. This period where there's a loss of faith in so many human things. Why? Because of sin. Because human leadership will always let us down, even the best of it. Yet at this moment, at this Advent, we need to remember that God is still calling his faithful. And why can we have faith? Because God is the unshakable rock upon which we can build our house. And I love those words. The faithful are joyful. Happiness is dependent on the environment. I don't know about you, but often I find myself looking at the news and have to put it down because there's just so many depressing things happening in the world. We used to think six months ahead. It's really hard now. We're at this great place in Australia now uh, with things opening up. Yet, you look at what's happening in Europe and you think, goodness me, what's going to happen in the winter? This seems to be life now. And that's just one thing. It's not just COVID. There's so many things happening in the world. It is really easy to be despairing at the moment when you look at the circumstances of the environment. But joy transcends circumstances of the environment. Why? Because it's rooted in God who we can have faith in. It's an eternal joy because we know that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what sufferings we may face now, that actually God is bringing heaven to earth. And when we have faith in him, we will be with him in this life and beyond. 
It also has that wonderful world triumphant. This is not a triumphant where we conquer everyone and we place ourselves in human leadership over everything. That's not the place the church is called to be. Instead, this is a sense of triumph of God over sin, over death, over brokenness, over destruction. And what I love is that final word, which I think sows these two series together in a wonderful bow, Bethlehem. We're called to David's city. We're called to be like David, who had faithfulness, an imperfect, broken man, just like you and me are imperfect, broken men and women, women and uh, uh, boys and girls, the whole lot, humans who are broken. So it points us to David, but also points us to Bethlehem, where Jesus comes from. We think of those moments, tiny baby, vulnerable, not like a tall, handsome, striking Saul or Absalom, but a baby who then goes on the run, becomes a refugee in Egypt from an evil king, who grows into God in human form, Jesus, and dies on the cross in our place, in our rebellion, and is breaking out his kingdom in the world. On the third day, he rises from the grave. And that moment of rising from the grave means that we can have joy. We are part of his triumph. So this Advent, God is asking us again. And it just feels like it means something more. After not being able to meet for so long together, he's again reconstituting his church. Last night, I prayed with a friend of a who is a prophetic voice and I really trust them. And, and he had this real sense that God is rearranging his church at this point in time, that he's creating a remnant. This aligns with so much of what we've felt. It is happening across the world. There are churches which have lost 75% of their people during COVID. But my friend said, don't look at who's left, look at the space that that's created in which God's gonna do a new thing. So he's saying at this time, I come all ye faithful again. And let's follow the one true king. God, we can't generate faithfulness in our own strength. We can only generate faithfulness through you. We can't even generate it. You give it to us. It's a gift of your love, your grace. So may you, at this moment, perhaps have loss of faith in so many things. It's been so much disruption so much dismay in the last two years. We look to you again and we say yes again. We begin the Advent journey again with the wonder of the shepherds coming to the nativity, the baby in the manger. Gather your faithful people again. It may be smaller in many places, your church, but it's been through a refining fire. So we pray at our church, in us, in our hearts, just people watching this, maybe even just by themselves this morning. God, gather your faithful. We say yes again to you. We have faith in you. And the good things that you will bring, the heaven that you're bringing to earth. And we say yes to your heavenly throne, your heavenly kingdom. In your name. Amen.